0: Welcome to the Frog of History, the podcast for people who like history but struggle to remember that the cotton gin was not a flavored alcoholic beverage. I'm your host, Don Griffith. In this episode, who was the first woman to receive a U.S. patent? It turns out the answer to that question isn't as straightforward as you might think. And well, why is it important? Well, to me, it's important because the role of women in technological advances in the country has a longer history than many realize. Indeed, behind many of the most successful captains of industry, there was a woman, without whose contributions that captain might have just been paddling a canoe and not commanding an industrial ship of the line. Now, many assert that the first woman to be granted a patent was Mary Dixon Keys, And on May 5, 1809, she was granted her patent for a method of weaving straw with silk thread. It was listed as number 1,040 in a list of patents provided by the Secretary of State to the U.S. Congress. Now this method was used to make hats, or more precisely straw bonnets, of the type that were very popular in the early 1800s. Unfortunately, like today, not too long after her patent was granted, fashions changed and sales plummeted. She never really had the chance to profit from her invention and she died in poverty. And while she, like so many other women who have gone unrecognized for their contributions, deserves our respect and praise, she might not actually be the first American woman to receive a patent. That honor might belong to another inventor some 16 years earlier. Her name was Hannah Wilkinson Slater, and she seems to have invented a new kind of cotton thread that aided her husband's business immensely. But cotton, and in particular how to process cotton into fabric, was the high-stakes competitive technology of its days. Industrial spies, some even hired by other governments, attempted to steal each other's cotton processing technology. And Hannah's story is intertwined, if you'll pardon the pun, with this international intrigue. And perhaps as early as 1793, she filed for and possibly even received a patent on her new type of thread. If so, it pushes back the date of the first patent by a woman by some sixteen years, and only three years after the passage of the first patent act in the United States. So as usual, we'll need some context. But first, yet another silent moment broken only by the creaking of the frog of history where our sponsor's ad ought to go. Well, still no sponsors. So on with the context. Hannah was born to Oziel Wilkinson and Lydia Smith Wilkinson on December 15, 1774, in Smithfield, Rhode Island, just outside Providence. Now, A boycott, called for by the First Continental Congress, had gone into effect just two weeks earlier. Participating merchants and other supporters refused to import or use products from Great Britain. Only four months later, and some 60 miles to the north, Minutemen at Lexington and Concord would engage the British in the first battles of the American Revolutionary War. Now Ozil was a blacksmith and he and his wife were members of the Religious Society of Friends, who were also known as the Quakers. And in the 1780s the family moved to Pawtucket, just a few miles east of Smithfield, where Ozil began making ship's anchors along the Blackstone River. Now you have to understand that our notion of blacksmiths today is often skewed by images of Wild West one-man shops shoeing horses for a living. But a blacksmith was the engineer and machinist of the day, They were ingenious in their ability to design and create remarkable tools, fixtures, and equipment out of iron, steel, and brass. Hannah's brothers would take up the trade as well, and David Wilkinson, her older brother, in 1794 would invent the Wilkinson lathe. Indeed, many credit Oziel and David with the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution in the United States. As a matter of fact, David received a patent for his lathe in December 1798. It was a machine designed to cut screws, Now that might not seem like such a big deal, but think about a screw. Now think about how one might make a screw from a round piece of iron. You could cut the screw by hand, but how do you get the little swirly things, you know, the threads correctly spaced? David's lathe, designed with a sliding guide, enabled blacksmiths to cut screws out of metal blanks evenly and efficiently. He was pretty ingenious. He also built a steam engine, perhaps one of the first to propel a boat, and a general purpose lathe that went on to be widely used in the machine tool industry. And you can see how Hannah might have a knack for inventiveness. It ran in the family. But what about Hannah? This is, after all, about her. Now, it's hard to find, though, much information about her that isn't really about the men in her life. And this is the challenge with researching the early history of women in America. That history has been written by men about men. But there is much we can glean from the records, and in doing so, lift just a little the veil that is the fog of history. While the public and business role of women at the turn of the 19th century was limited in the the United States, both by law and practice, as a Quaker, she grew up with more equality than most women. Quakers had a long tradition of religious equality between men and women, and while patriarchy was still the rule of the day, women played a more equal role in Quaker services and in Quaker families and in Quaker society. She would have been educated at home she would have learned to read and write, and she would have been taught many of the domestic duties that most young women of the time would have learned. And this included learning to spin thread and yarn on domestic spinning wheels for making and repairing clothes. And while traditional occupational roles still applied, she would have learned from both parents and from her siblings. But like many young women in the late 18th century, by the time she was 16 or so, she would have been eligible to marry. And this means we need to introduce Samuel Slater. Now Samuel was born in Derbyshire, England in 1768. So he was about six years older than Hannah. And he had been an apprentice for Jedediah Strutt who owned a cotton mill in England. Now Strutt and his business partner had been introduced to a guy named Richard Arkwright. And Arkwright had famously invented a machine called a water frame for spinning cotton thread by use of a water wheel. Samuel was apprenticed to Strutt, and um, after his apprenticeship ended, he needed to find work. And knowledge of Arkwright's invention was highly sought after in the United States. You see, Great Britain had enacted a series of protectionist restrictions on exporting tools and know-how. So blacksmiths, silversmiths, mill workers, and other skilled tradesmen were prohibited from taking the tools of their trade out of the country. Not only could they be fined or imprisoned, captains of ships who helped to smuggle out the technology could face similar punishments and confiscation of the contraband. In America, these restrictions were reviewed as an effort by the British to keep the newly formed country reliant on British goods, from silverware to clothing. The British, for their part, just viewed it as protecting uh, their intellectual property. So unable to take a copy or model of Arkwright's invention with him, Samuel tried to memorize as much of it as possible, At the time, there was a lot of industrial espionage going on, much of it even encouraged by the United States government as a means to create a more independent commercial system. This was balanced, however, by the need to avoid outright commercial and military conflict with Great Britain, and trade diplomacy, just like today, was a complicated mess. Among this, in 1789, Samuel moved to the United States. Now, he initially headed for New York and got a job there, but by late 1789, he wasn't happy and learned that better work might reside in Rhode Island, where Moses Brown, as well as Brown's brother and a cousin, had entered the cotton manufacturing business. Now, you might have heard about Moses Brown. Not only was he a businessman and another Quaker, but he and his brothers were also founders of what would become Brown University. Now, Slater thought he could help the Browns, who were having trouble reproducing both the quality and the quantity of cotton that they thought that they they should be able to produce on a copy of an Arkwright machine. Now, sort of like today, why buy the name brand when a generic knockoff might be just as good? So they were trying to be that knockoff, and Slater got the job based on his knowledge of the Arkwright machine. So Brown, just like poaching a competitor's employees today, hired Samuel and he moved to Rhode Island. Samuel soon learned, however, that the machines were basically worthless imitations, and that he would need to start from scratch. And he was despondent, but determined to make them work. But like any young person in a new town, he needed a place to live. And it wasn't unusual for families back then to take in boarders. And Moses Brown introduced Samuel to Moses' fellow Quaker, Oziel Wilkinson, suggesting that Samuel board with the Wilkinson family. Now, according to Slater's friend and biographer, George White, two of Wilkinson's daughters were still at home when Slater came to visit. Now, according to White, Moses Brown introduced Mr. Slater to Oziel Wilkinson of Pawtucket, Rhode Island as a suitable place for him to board. As the stranger came into the house, the two daughters, as is not uncommon, ran out of sight. But Hannah lingered with curiosity and looked through an opening in the door. Samuel saw her eyes and was interested in her favor. He loved at first sight, but it was sincere, it was permanent. Nothing but death could have severed the ties which endeared him to Hannah Wilkinson. He was happy in fixing his affections so soon on one who loved him, and on one so worthy that lodestones served to bind him to Pawtucket when everything else appeared dreary and discouraging. So Samuel moved in and love was in the air. The 1790 census doesn't provide a lot of information, but it does indicate that in Oziel's household were six free men above the age of 16 and three women, though the census doesn't delineate between younger and older women. But we do know that Hannah had three sisters, at least one of whom was already married. So the three women are likely Hannah's mother and at least one other sister, and possibly even Hannah. It's not clear why the fourth woman in the household is missing, but the census was far from perfect. It also shows two free white males below the age of 16, and these were probably Hannah's younger brothers. And the census carries two other categories, all other persons, and slaves. Now Osiel, like many Quakers, didn't own slaves, but there is an entry for one other person. Could this have been Samuel? Of course, Hannah, like her family, was a Quaker, while Samuel wasn't, and Osiel and Lydia were initially opposed to their courtship and eventual marriage. Samuel's friend George White explained it this way, the parents of Hannah being friends they could not consistently give consent to her marriage out of the society and talked of sending her away some distance to school, which occasioned Mr. Slater to say, you may send her where you please, but I will follow her to the ends of the earth. Now, whether the claim by George White is true or just the embellishment of an admiring biographer, we don't know, but it is true that on October 2nd, 1791, Samuel and Hannah were married. Samuel was 23. Hannah was two months shy of her 17th birthday. Now, the marriage seemed to be a happy one. As Slater's friend White noted, in Oziel Wilkinson's family, he found a father and mother who were kind to him as their own son. He was not distrustful of his ability to support a family, did not wait to grow rich before marriage, but was willing to take his bride for better and for worse, and she received the young Englishman as the man of her choice and the object of her first love. This connection with Oziel Wilkinson was of great service to him as a stranger inexperienced in the world beyond his peculiar sphere. Seems, though, that the young couple wasn't in a hurry to start a family. Their first child, William, wouldn't be born until nearly five years later. For Samuel, he worked constantly to build his business through the early part of their marriage in 1792 and 1793. In fact, Hannah's brother, Smith Wilkinson, recalled how business was a frequent topic of conversation among the family. When the manufacturing business first commenced in Pawtucket, it may be very naturally supposed that it was frequently a subject of conversation, especially in a family so immediately connected with it. I recollect to have heard frequent conversations on the subject in which the state and progress of the business was discussed. Now, Samuel Slater's early struggles to get the business up and running required immense effort and tons of time. It wasn't unusual for him to work 16 hours a day, and it wasn't at all clear whether the business would be a success. And as I mentioned earlier, competition from England and elsewhere in New England was stiff, and espionage was rampant. Competitors were trying to outdo one another and stealing their secrets. In fact, Eli Whitney would receive his patent for the cotton gin just a little time later in March of 1794. But even before this, several patents were being issued relating to the manufacturing processes for cotton. Cotton was becoming big business. Of course, this also meant slavery was continuing to grow as fast as the cotton in the fields. And that was an inconvenient fact that most businessmen on both sides of the Atlantic chose to ignore or downplay. There were even rumors of attempts to assassinate Samuel to prevent him from perfecting his cotton manufacturing system. These rumors spread through Rhode Island, especially early on when they were building the business. And while the rumors were false, it gives one the sense that the young entrepreneurs Samuel and Hannah had a lot on their plates. Now, as White wrote about it several years later, another rumor which has spread far and wide calls for contradiction and explanation. It has been positively asserted that the British government employed a person to assassinate Mr. Slater by means of an infernal machine, similar, it is said, in operation to the one employed to attempt the life of Napoleon. I never believed this story worthy of any attention till Mr. and Mrs. Slater made us a visit in Canterbury in 1827. His coachman told it as an undoubted truth among the inhabitants of the village. It received implicit credit on account of the supposed knowledge of his driver, and it was spread as a Canterbury tale. I therefore applied to my friend for a correct exposition of the circumstance. He assured me there was no ground whatever for such a representation. It arose from the circumstance of a box of clothes being sent him from England, and it was stopped in the Custom House in New York, which the following letter to Moses Brown, Providence, and endorsed by him will show. Pawtucket, July 1st, 1790. Sir, I have received letters from England that there is a box at New York with some clothes, which the officers have stopped the impost not being paid. The clothes are new, but made for my use, and I suppose they would be free of duty. Should be glad if you would use such means as you think best to get them with little or no duty, and oblige yours, etc., Samuel Slater. And he had a little P.S. note after using the N.B. or note bene. I suppose there is more than a hundred dollars of clothes in the box. So, during all this intrigue and hard work, Samuel and Hannah appear to have delayed having children while they focused on growing the business. And it is here that Hannah's invention comes into focus as well. Now, given her more egalitarian upbringing and Samuel's singular attention on the cotton business, it doesn't seem at all surprising that Hannah, likely intimately aware of the state of the business affairs, might have her own ideas about the business and the products they were manufacturing. After all, this was cotton. And around the home, women were the primary users of the cloth and the thread. She would have known full well the qualities that made thread useful, and she would have spun much of it on her own loom for use at home. And while cotton was used to make cloth, the thread used to sew that cloth together was often made from linen. A cotton thread of equal or greater ability had yet to be developed. That is, until, according to the accounts, Hannah came along. Now The evidence of her invention is all secondhand, but the core story seems fairly consistent. But as we'll see, something even apparently as reliable as the U.S. Patent Office doesn't seem to have it right. Indeed, over the years, it seems like a bit of telephone tag has occurred in which the story gets changed, exaggerated, and perhaps in places just completely made up. To add to this confusion, when some hundred, 100 years after the event, Hannah and Samuel's last living child, Horatio Nelson Slater, tells the story again a story likely handed down from the family and relating to events that occurred before he was even born. And so we're left to speculate about what actually happened. But first, the story as it is now told. Sometime in 1793, which still would have been during the early stages of building the Slater cotton business, Samuel showed Hannah and her sister some very smooth yarn from something called Long Staple Suriname Cotton. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, the cotton was designed to produce cloth to be further cut and sewn into clothing or other finished goods. Hannah took the yarn in her hands and in in one official version written by the Slater Trust Company itself back in 1917, 120 years after the event. We even learn what she was supposed to have said Now this was in a pamphlet called Pawtucket Past and Present. And in it, the company claims that Hannah says, "'Is it not very smooth,' she is reputed to have said to her sister, "'but would it not make good thread?' And the story goes on to tell us that with the help of her sister, she twisted some of it on the spinning wheel with the result that she made a very good grade of 22-ply thread. Let us try it on these seams and see if it is strong as linen thread. I'm surprised the story didn't include any these and thous as Quakers still use those quaint pronouns. Now, according to the Slater Trust Company, the thread proved to be much stronger, and the outcome of the experiment was that the first sewing thread ever made of cotton was manufactured by Samuel Slater, assisted by his wife, in 1793. Now, while perhaps embellished, it is consistent with the earliest accounts of Hannah's contribution and might even be derived from them. Indeed, our friend George White, Samuel's biographer, cites a similar story contained in a November 1831 letter to him that he reproduces in the biography. There are some minor factual differences, such as the yarn was Sea Island cotton, not Suriname cotton, and it wasn't specifically 22-ply thread, and there was no dialogue. But it is pretty much the same account. So it's likely this story has at least a kernel of truth to it, And Hannah probably did invent a type of cotton thread that could be used for sewing. The problem is that this wasn't even White's recollection about Hannah spinning the thread. This came in this correspondence that he reproduced in the memoir from an unattributed writer passing on information to him about the town of Slaterville, named, of course, for Samuel, the patriarch of manufacturers. So here's what that letter says from 1831. It is only known to a few that the world is indebted to this gentleman for the discovery of cotton thread. In 1794, while spinning a quantity of Sea Island cotton, the evenness and beauty of the yarn attracted the attention of Mrs. Slater. The question arose, if this is doubled and twisted, why will it not make a good sewing thread? The experiment was made, and in order to be fully satisfied of the result, a sheet was made with, one half linen thread and the other half with the cotton. It was immediately put into use and the first thread that gave way was the linen. From the period he commenced the manufacture of thread and it soon spread into England, France and other European countries where it is generally supposed to be of English origin. So here the claim is is that cotton thread was an American invention created by Hannah Slater. Now this is the earliest reference I can find about Hannah's invention and most others seem to copy from it or a slightly later version that ran in a couple of newspapers, but whose source clearly appears to be this biography or memoir, as it was called, of Samuel Slater. And no mention of a patent application appears in any of those stories. Indeed, as I mentioned earlier, Hannah and Samuel's son, Horatio Nelson Slater, provided a similar story only a few years before his death. In 1884, just uh, four years before he died, a reminiscence attributed to him was published in The Economic and Social History of New England. And it may be the source of even more confusion as to whether Hannah used Sea Island or Suriname Cotton, but his recollection is also tainted, likely, by both the distance of time, coming some 90 years after the occurrences, and learned only second or even third hand from other family members. But his words seem to have been taken at face value, and in it, He says that the firm Almy Brown and Slater was formed and started the manufacture of cotton yarns in Pawtucket in 1790. In all the perfection of the best mills in England, cotton sewing thread was unknown in England. It was not imperfect as has been said. Samuel Slater sent some yarns to his old master who pronounced them as good as any. They were made from Suriname cotton longer than our present sea island and in fiber like silk. Cotton sewing thread was unknown in England and we are indebted to the Wilkinson women of Pawtucket for the idea which initiated the invention. Using the yarn which had been spun in Pawtucket for a year and a half, these women, of a family remarkable for mechanical ingenuity, conceived the idea of a thread which should take the place of linen. They twisted the yarns on their domestic spinning wheel and made the first cotton thread in 1792. The manufacturer was established by Wilkinson Brothers. In other words... Hannah's brothers. So here we have Hannah's son claiming that it was the Wilkinson women, namely his mother and his aunt, who invented cotton thread. But again, still no mention or discussion of any patent application. It's only later that there are claims that she also applied for a patent, which was granted sometime in 1793 or 1794. But the story goes because she was a woman she couldn't own property herself and so the patent was granted to Mrs. Samuel Slater. And the confusion has only been exacerbated by the very government agency she has claimed to have applied to the U.S. Patent Office. You see in a laudable effort to raise awareness about women inventors the introduction to a 2019 brochure titled Progress and Potential a Profile of Women Inventors on U.S. Patents. In the very first paragraph of the introduction, it starts this way. Hannah Wilkinson Slater is often celebrated as the first woman to receive a U.S. patent. In 1793, she received a patent for a new method of producing cotton sewing thread. She was inspired in the mills run by her husband, Samuel Slater, who had left England as a young young apprentice, undeterred by a ban preventing textile craftsmen from emigrating to the United States. Interestingly, the United States issued Hannah Wilkinson Slater's patent to Mrs. Samuel Slater, which, was created, which has created some ambiguity regarding whether she was indeed the first American female patent inventor. Okay, there are so many problems with that paragraph, it's hard to know where to begin. Now, the footnote that cites the patent doesn't actually cite some patent authority like the patent office itself, where this brochure is coming from, or even a scholarly authority It cites the Encyclopedia Britannica blog post, and that blog post doesn't provide any original source evidence, or any other other evidence for that matter, for the statement. Instead, it's just a blog post of 10 key dates in women's history, the early modern period. It's not exactly a scholarly citation. Moreover, the Patent Office brochure was written by the Patent Office's Office of Chief Economist, not exactly an authority on the history of patents. In fact, I don't think the pamphlet was intended as a scholarly historical research article. About as close as it gets to acknowledging this is in a footnote, and in that footnote it says, there is ambiguity among historians regarding the first American woman to receive a U.S. patent, in part because the relevant documents were destroyed by a fire at the U.S. Patent Office in 1836. The problem is, is that, as we'll learn in a little bit, there are records of what patents were granted before 1836, had the economists only dug a little bit deeper. It goes on to claim that well before the U.S. patent system was created, Sibylla Master, who devised a method for processing corn into cornmeal, was granted an English patent in 1715. Because women were not allowed to hold property at the time, the patent was issued in her husband's name. This too is loaded with all sorts of evidentiary problems. First, it's only partially true that women were not allowed to hold property. Single women in the United States, either before they were married or once widowed, were indeed allowed to own property in the colonies and then after the United States became the United States. It was married women who lost their identity and she and her husband were deemed to be one person and that one person was the husband. So while this would have been true in terms of ownership for someone like Hannah, as a general matter, it's simply wrong. Moreover, the footnote cites as its authority something called the Women's History Blog, which is a fine blog, but it makes it abundantly clear on the website that the sources for its stories are all found on the internet. And in the case of the particular blog post cited, it offers no scholarly evidence for the statement that Hannah got a patent. It simply cites other internet sites that frankly don't provide any original source evidence either. So it becomes circular very fast, and that's the challenge. So one can add to this the fact that in 1836, the Patent Office did have a fire in which nearly all the original patent applications were lost. Now some claim that this is why we don't know whether Hannah was ever granted a patent. So now we have to deconstruct as best we can the facts from the legend. So let's learn a little bit about the Patent Office and the patent laws that were passed first in 1790 and then changed in 1793 to enable inventors in America to get a patent and therefore get protection for their inventions. So protecting the rights of inventors is embedded in the United States Constitution. It grants Congress the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writing and discoveries. So inventions are pretty important to a country and protecting the inventors uh, from gray market thieves is a critical part of commerce of any country. So pursuant to that constitutional authority, the first Patent Act was passed in April 1790 during the first Congress of the United States under the new Constitution. In fact, it was viewed by many of the founders as so critical to the commercial development of the US that it was only the third law to be passed by Congress. The first law was a law on the time and manner manner of administering oaths, not only as to the Senate and House, but to other state and federal officers. The second, as you can imagine, was a tax specifically an excise tax on the importation of a bunch of different imports, especially the good stuff like beer, wine, liquor, sugar, coffee, and for our purposes, yarn and thread. Now this patent act said, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that upon the petition of any person or persons to the Secretary of State, the Secretary for the Department of War, and the Attorney General of the United States, setting forth now here's the interesting part, that he, she, or they, hath or have invented or discovered any useful art, manufacture, engine, machine, or device, or any improvement therein, not before known or used, and praying that a patent may be granted, therefor, it shall be and may be lawful to and for the Secretary of State, the Secretary for the Department of War, and the Attorney General, or any two of them, if they shall deem the invention or discovery sufficiently useful and important to cause letters patent to be made out in the name of the United States. Now that's a mouthful, but still pretty simple. Now notably, women could apply for a patent and one could be issued in her name. That's the reference to he, she, or they in the law. Of course, to the extent that she was married, ownership of that patent might under state law have belonged to her husband And it's an interesting question as to whether a federal law allowing a patent grant to a woman could preempt state marriage laws, but that's a different podcast. Now the problem was that the law required applicants to provide a written description together with drafts or models distinguishing the applicant's invention from prior art. Now a model is exactly what you think it is. It's a miniature version of your machine. And you had to petition the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, and the Attorney General all of whom were, re- were required to examine the application, and then at least two of them had to agree that the patent should be issued. So as you can imagine, that took a lot of time. Think about it. Thomas Jefferson, as Secretary of State, had to personally examine your patent. He had to understand it, and then he had to, then he had to decide that it was useful and important. And two members had to agree. And The statute provided almost nothing in the way of either substantive or procedural review standards. And so the system proved extremely cumbersome, and only about 57 patents were issued under the 1790 Act. In fact, it was so cumbersome that in 1793, Congress reformed the law. Now this new patent law though, had just the opposite effect, making it very easy to get a patent. Now patents were still limited to any new and useful art, machine, manufacture, or composition of matter, or any new and useful improvement on any art, machine, manufacture, or composition of matter. So while the requirement that the patented invention had to be useful continued, it wasn't longer It was no longer necessary that it be important, and that's a difficult thing to de- to decide, especially at a time when it's just being invented. I mean, think about it. Did anybody think the internet was that important when it was invented? I mean, other than Al Gore, of course. The problem with the new law was that instead of examining a patent application to determine whether the invention met the requirements of the act, it was really left up to the courts to declare a patent invalid if it lacked novelty or wasn't properly described in the application. And as more patents were issued, there would be more patent disputes arose, and this became a burden on the courts. So I suppose it's possible then that Hannah might have applied for a patent in 1793, or 1794, after the 1793 Patent Act was passed, and, and it would have been fairly easy to get a patent. It is interesting to note, though, that the language about he, she, or they had changed in the 1793 Act from he, she, or they to he, or they. It's not clear what impact this might have had, but we do know later that it appears that um, Mary Keys eventually did get a patent in 1809, but there were no women who appeared to have been granted a patent before that. But if Hannah had applied, it was probably under this new act in 1793. Now some authors claim that any patent application and grant would have been lost in this great patent office fire that occurred in December, 1836. Now, nearly 10,000 patents were lost in the fire as well as a couple thousand models of the inventions. And that itself is a true historic tragedy. These authors will claim that Hannah's patent was lost in the fire, or at the very least, we can never know whether one was granted because the early records were all lost. But here's the thing, though. In February of 1805, James Madison, who was then the Secretary of State, sent a letter to the Speaker of the House of Representatives responding to the House's request of a list of individuals who had been granted a patent since 1790. So Madison's letter was written 30 years before the fire, and while all the records were still available, and it lists all the patents granted from July 1, 1790 to December 31, 1804. And while there are several patents relating to the manufacture of cotton, including Eli Whitney's famous patent for the cotton gin, which shows up on the list as being granted on March 14, 1794, but neither Hannah's name nor her invention appears anywhere in the list. Her brother David Wilkinson's patent for a machine for cutting screws appears on the list as being granted on December 14, 1798. So might Hannah have applied and not received one? Maybe, but starting in 1793 under the new Patent Act, patents were pretty easy to get. Could it have been missed? Maybe. My own suspicion is that she did, indeed, create the thread that Samuel used, but that a patent was never sought. Indeed, Slater took out no patents until much later in life. And Hannah's brother never patented his most useful lathe. And as a result, that one was copied profusely to the point that several years later, the Congress actually granted him $10,000 for the invention, even though he never patented it. So we're left with speculation about Hannah and her invention. It doesn't seem to have affected their business, though. Samuel continued to grow his cotton manufacturing business. And after the initial hiccups, it grew substantially, to the point where he is often labeled today as the father of the American Industrial Revolution. But what happened to Hannah? Hannah? Samuel and Hannah seemed happy. They had 10 children over the years. Their first child, as I mentioned before, William, was born in 1796, five years after they got married. Unfortunately, he died at age 5 in 1801. Elizabeth and Mary followed in 1798 and 1801. Tragically, Elizabeth died the same year as William in 1801, and Mary was only two when she died in 1803. But after Mary, they had another seven sons. Samuel was born during all this tragedy in 1802, but he would die young at 19. He was followed by George, John, Horatio Nelson, who we met before, and William between 1804 and 1809. And in 1811, Hannah had another baby boy, but he died presumably at birth or soon thereafter as he wasn't given a name. So, the family, even amidst the tragedy of early childhood deaths, continued to grow. And then in 1812, Hannah gave birth to Thomas. She was 37 and at high risk of complications due to her age. And Thomas was born on September 19th. But something happened. She struggled to recover from Thomas's birth. And just two weeks later, on October 2nd, Hannah died. She was 37. Samuel buried her in Smithfield. A short notice was published in the paper. It reads, at North Providence on Friday last, Mrs. Hannah Slater, consort of Samuel Slater, Esquire, in the 38th year of her age, a virtuous and highly respectable lady whose excellent qualities displayed in the various walks of life, endeared her while living to all whom came within the sphere of her acquaintance and embalm her memory in their hearts. For Samuel, it seems Hannah's death was devastating. As his friend George White explained, The War of 1812 decided the success of Mr. Slater's business. By that time, he had got so far under way and all the operations and preparations he had previously made now gave him great advantage. Cotton cloth sold at 40 cents per yard and the demand was unlimited. While his business was thus increasing and he was making money rapidly, He suffered a severe domestic affliction in the loss of his beloved wife in the 37th year of her age, soon after the birth of her last child. Thus, he was left with a helpless family when his business demanded every moment of his attention. Of course, the care of his family was left to persons hired for the purpose, and they sometimes suffered for the common and necessary attention suitable to their age and infirmities. At that time, it was extremely difficult to obtain suitable persons to help in families. No money could secure them. Under no circumstances can you fill the place of a mother. I visited my friend while he was a widower and could not help observing how great a chasm was made in his family by the loss of his beloved Hannah. Her loss was felt by all her friends, and the poor lamented her whose charities and kindness they had experienced." While Samuel continued his business, other manufacturers seem to have caught up with his innovations and even surpassed him in the use of new technologies and methods. some historians have argued that in the latter part of his career, he didn't seem to have the same competitive edge that he had when he was younger. And they attribute this to many things in terms of business techniques, business strategies, and the use of technologies. And they all seem to ignore, though, perhaps the psychological explanation. He no longer had the drive he once had because he no longer had the partner in Hannah that he once had. Indeed, about five years after Hannah's death, Samuel remarried. This, it seems, was a marriage of convenience. His proposal was in the form of a letter to Esther Parkinson, who he and Hannah had known before her death and who was also a widow. The letter is addressed to Mrs. Robert Parkinson Widow. Philadelphia, from North Providence, Rhode Island, September 23, 1817. Dear Madam, As the wise disposer of all events has seen fit in his wisdom to place you and me in a single state, notwithstanding, I presume, none of his decrees have gone forth which compels either of us to remain in a state of widowhood, therefore, under these and other circumstances, I now take the liberty to address you on a momentous subject. I have been inclined for some time past to change my situation in life and have at times named you to my brother and sister for a partner who have invariably recommended you as suitable and have fully acquiesced with my ideas on the subject. Now, if you are under no obligation to anyone and on weighing the subject fully you should think that you can spend the remainder of your days with me, I hope you will not feel reluctant in writing me soon to that effect. You need not be abashed in any degree to express your mind on this business, for I trust years have taught me to receive your reply favorably if my understanding has not. I have six sons to comfort you with the oldest about 15 years. He has been at Oxford about a year, not Oxford in Great Britain. The youngest is in his sixth year. I believe they are all compass mentis, and they are as active as any six boys, although they are mine. Cousin Mary is down from Ludlow on a visit. She has a noble, corpulent son about six months old. I should have divulged my intentions to you months past, had not my brother given me to understand that he expected you daily on this way on a visit. Probably you may consider me rather blunt in this business. Hope you will attribute that to the country that gave me birth. I consider myself a plain, candid Englishman, and hope and trust you will be candid enough to write me a short answer at least whether it be in the affirmative or negative. And should it be in the negative, I stand ready and willing to render you all the advice and assistance in my power relative to settling your worldly matters. With due respect as a friend and countryman, I am, dear madam, your well-wisher, Samuel Slater. NB, hope you are a Freemason, as respects keeping secrets. Not exactly the I'll follow you to the ends of the earth romanticism Samuel's attraction to Hannah in his youth. And so Samuel remarried and continued his business and his marriage until his death in 1835. He had no children with Esther. George, John, Horatio, and Thomas survived him. But all but Horatio died in their 30s within 10 years of Samuel's death. Only Horatio Nelson Slater lived a long life. He took over the family business after his brothers died, and successfully ran it for four decades, and he died aged 80 in 1888. So there you have it, the short story of Hannah Wilkinson Slater. Did Hannah invent a new type of cotton thread that helped grow the family business? More than likely. Was Hannah the first woman to receive a patent in the United States? Probably not. Does it really matter? Definitely not. What does matter is that she, like so many women, clearly left an indelible mark on her family and her community. A contribution vastly more valuable than any patent might have provided. And, unfortunately, it's a mark that has been lost in the fog of history. I'm your host, Don Griffith. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode of The Frog of History. If you'd like to learn more about the frog, and maybe even a bit more about history, hop on over to our website at www.frogofhistory.com. Send questions or ideas for future podcasts, to contact at frogofhistory.com. The Frog of History Podcast is a production of Big Frog and Little Pond Enterprises. The producer, host, and all-around bullfrog was Don Griffith. No amphibians were harmed in the production of this episode.